Well, good morning, New City, and thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. I want to tell you a quick story about the Western Australian jewel beetle that's actually over the last decade or so has come into a lot of problems in Australia, in Australia uh, because what they do during mating season is that the male jewel beetles will fly, they'll hover over the ground, the females don't fly, they'll find a shiny be beetle back of a female, fly down, and then they will mate. Uh, the problem is, what you'll see on the screen here is a picture of a bunch of beetles, um, very, very, you know, exciting stuff. Uh, due to littering uh, on the long western, on the western part of Australia, the long roadways, there's been a lot of littering over the last couple decades or so. People have tossed beer bottles, and the ones that are brown look like this. Over time, there has been so many beer bottles that have been tossed onto the ground that many of the male beetles, as they're hovering above the ground, have become confused and have actually tried to mate with these beer bottles. Um, I guess you could say they like big bottles and they cannot lie. Actually, however, as funny as this might be, um, thank you, it's, a, it's a, like a delayed laughter there. As funny as it might be, it's actually a threat to the species. So it's actually a threat to the species because when this happens, uh, they are not mating with female beetles and then they're, they're not creating more beetles. And, and I share this story to kind of set us up for what we're talking about today. Uh, we were, it would be in this series, Controversial Jesus. We've talked about Jesus and controversy, hell, exclusivity. Today, we're probably talking about what, what was not controversial in first century Jew, you know, Israel, but is a controversial in our day and age today, and that is Jesus and gender and sexuality. And I think this jewel beetle example is probably a good uh, example of what our society has experienced, particularly over the last 60 years, of what has been known as the sexual revolution. As things and society's ideas have shifted, we're going to see here that, that has it actually given us what we thought it was going to give us. Now, I want to say this up front as we get into this topic. I know, I know that issues of sexuality are a hard topic, and for many, it can bring about a lot of shame, whether it's things that you've done, things that you've experienced, or things that were done to you. And it can almost feel like, on sermons like today, like the whole room is looking at you when I'm talking about these things. Now, now you might know intellectually they're not looking at you, but that's how it feels. That's how it feels. And so to set this up, I just want to kind of maybe level set where we're going here. I just want to read a verse. It's uh, not, you know, it's a pretty normal verse and to kind of explain where we're going. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, flee sexual immorality. So if you, if you feel kind of shame what we're talking about, just track with me for a second because I'm going to do something to show you that you are actually not alone. Now, one thing that's helpful to know is that when you read the scripture, you need to remember that scripture cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. It cannot mean for us what it did not mean to the original readers of these words. And so what happens, maybe things around sexual morality, is that it gets confusing. Maybe in modern times, what people think is sexual immoral, sexually is moral, is different for different people. And so we need to, what did the original audience think this meant? That's what it actually is happening. Now, sexual immorality here comes from the Greek word porneia, which is where this is translated sexual immorality. And biblically speaking, it represents all sexual activity outside of God's design of one man and one woman that, uh, in marriage that was blessed as good in Genesis 2. So this is one of many passages. When it's talking about sexual immorality, the underlying assumption is here's what scripture has said about it. Anything outside of that would be considered sexual, sexually immoral. Now, contrary to what you might assume, depending on your background or what you've experienced with church or the Bible, uh, Scripture is not saying sex is bad. God is not anti-sex. What it's talking about here is that it can be either life-giving or life-sucking, depending on its context. 
depending on its context. Now, what we've talked about in this series as well is that everyone, for example, Christian or not, right, we love to talk about the morality and love of Jesus. He's a good person, you know, do what he says, that sort of thing. Even non-Christians will say, yeah, I think he's a pretty good guy. Which I always want to say, if that's your view of Jesus, to love what Jesus says and not follow him as Lord means I'm not sure you've really read what he has said. Okay, and we're going to see what he has said here just in just a minute. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, it's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's his longest recorded sermon. He also, we, we, we know that these kind of topics that he hits in the Sermon on the Mount were, were the things he would have talked about many times over in his various travels around Israel. And in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he also talks about sexual sin. And he actually raises the standard of faithfulness of what people thought was quote-unquote wrong. He actually literally says that if you lust after someone who is not your spouse, then you've committed adultery in your heart, even if you haven't actually physically committed adultery. He says this in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What he's saying is if you see a man or a woman who is not your spouse and you find yourself lusting after them, you're committing adultery in your heart. And so, therefore, when Scripture speaks of sexual immorality, it would include, just so we're clear, it would include everything on this following list, right? Any sexual expression outside the Genesis ideal of one man and one woman in a committed marriage relationship. So this would include things like pornography, right? Lusting after someone who is not your spouse, oral sex outside of marriage, same-sex sexual expression, uh, polygamy, polyamory, masturbation, sexualizing yourself in, with intentionally provocative dress on Instagram to get a bunch of likes. And by the way, guys can do this too, right? If you're, you're intentionally dressing yourself in such a way to garner attention, uh, that would be considered sexual immorality. Uh, lusting, like Jesus says, after someone who is not your spouse. Now, I'll, I'm going to ask for participation in just a second. And if you call New City Home, do this with me, okay? If you have ever in any of your life done any of these things, even lusted after someone who is not your spouse even once, will you please raise your hand? My hand is raised. Please raise your hand, okay? Look around the room, everybody. Look around the room. What you will see, here's why I do this. You put your hand down. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know. You are in a room full of people just like you. And for the people that didn't raise their hand, you're also in a room full of liars, okay? <laughs> you're in a room full of liars. You are not alone. You're not alone in this, no matter what you have done or what has been done to you. In fact, I like to maybe think of it this way. Um, we, being, we, the body, the church, New City Church, we are not a bunch of good people trying to tell the bad people how to be good. It's not why we're here. We are, however, a bunch of forgiven people trying to tell all people about the only good person who has ever lived and his name is Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. We are all in the same spot when it comes to this topic that we're talking about this morning. Now, I also want to say this, your identity, it's a modern term that we like to talk about a lot, your identity and your value, therefore, is not, it is not in your sexuality, just like it's not in your career or your relationships or your achievement. According to scripture, your identity is not in any of those things. Here is where it is. Genesis chapter one, God is doing the story of creation. God's creating everything. And then he gets to human beings and it says this in verse 26. It'll be on the screen. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 27, so God created man in his own image. Man here means human in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, here's what you need to know. 
each time up until this point in the creation story, when God has created something, he has spoken and it was created. He always said, let there be, and then there was. But when he gets to humanity, he says, let us. In other words, it is the only time, it is the only time that we see the intent of the created thing before that thing is actually created. Here is why God created humanity, to make images, to make little idols of him, to him. And so the point is that God is making something different. By, 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 just by the fact that you are a human being, you are wholly different in all of creation than anything else. Now, humans, again, we're told here, are to be little idols or little representatives of God, and we are invited to co-rule with him. And therefore, when we properly love God and love others, we are imaging who God is in creation. We are being who God has asked us to be in his creation. So I say that to say this, human value is determined by God. Scripturally speaking, your value is not determined by what you do, what you've done, what you've achieved, what you promise to do in the future. Your value is determined based on the fact that God created you. It is not your income. It is not your influence. It is not your authority. It is not your intellect or your size or your geographical location or where you live. According to Scripture, all people are created in the image of God and are therefore intrinsically valuable. Valuable. All people. And hear me, it is not because it sounds like really good humanistic philosophy. It's not. It's because it is true. God didn't say this to make us feel better about ourselves. It is true. And so, therefore, sex and sexuality, they are a big deal because it impacts people. It impacts people. And every single person is valuable to God. That's why it matters. Because you are valuable to God. You are valuable. Your body is valuable. And so is everyone else around you. Therefore, again, sex, sexuality, gender is a biblical issue because it impacts the most valuable part of God's creation. And so with that in mind, I just want to real quick, I want to go, there's a ton of stats you can get. I've actually cut a bunch out just for time. Uh, but I want to give you some stats on how things have changed since the 1960s and the sexual revolution. Now, I'm not saying the 1960s were like some ideal, amazing time. I'm just saying we can point back to a time where sexual attitudes in the West and America really started to change. Okay. The sexual revolution began in the 1960s. And so some of these things, just for time, I don't have all the things on there. You can Google everything I say, okay? If you're like, I'm not sure, I would invite you to look this up yourself. Uh, in the 1960s, sociologists reported that happiness levels in America have been declining ever since. So if you look at ever since we started tracking these things, since the 1960s, our overall happiness has gone down. Now, as happiness levels have gone down, something else has gone dramatically up in American life, and that is divorce rates. Divorce rates, if you look statistically, have about doubled since exactly the 1960s and has resulted in an epidemic of fatherlessness. According to the U.S. Census Bureau today, more than one in four kids now grow up without a father in their home or present in their life. So we're not even talking about like divorce. I'm like saying dad's not even anywhere to be found in our pursuit for sexual fulfillment and doing our own thing. We've created this massive problem. We'll go to today. A lot of the big things that kids grow up with issues in their life are because they don't have dads. And I'm not trying to like shame whatever. I do want to say this though. Dads, you matter, man. You matter, man. Show up for your kids. You are not toxic. You are not replaceable. You matter. The trajectory of your kids' lives is determinative on how, how involved you are in their life. You don't have to be perfect, but you've got to be there. You've got to be there. 
80 to 90% of all teenagers will be exposed to pornography use, which that might not surprise you. What might surprise you with today, the average age is 11 years old. It's 11 years old. One in three teenagers today report having been seeing, having seen non-consensually shared nudes of other minors. By the way, that is child pornography. Today, sexual abuse is at its highest rate in our nation's history since we started tracking these things. One in four women will be victims of sexual abuse by age 18. By the way, can I say this? You cannot tell an entire generation that they are nothing but purposeless animals, do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, and then act surprised when they then go act like purposeless, purposeless animals. You can't be surprised. Now, cohabitation now has also uh, become really the, uh, the uh, societal national norm. That's the normal thing people do before they get married. They now move in together. Here's the problem. Uh, the problem is that cohabitation is shown by non-Christian sociologists to increase your likelihood of divorce by 50%. 50%. These are non-Christians. They've just seen the data. 50%. At which point, some guys will say, but yeah, we're just practicing for marriage. Can I just say, uh, we want to make sure we're a good fit. Um, just so you know, statistically speaking, you are not practicing for marriage. You're practicing for divorce. Statistically speaking, you are practicing for divorce. You have a twice as likelihood to get divorced if you, if you cohabitate before you get married, according to non-Christian sources. At which point people, usually guys, will say, but yeah, man, but you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it first. Or you wouldn't buy a pair of Jordans without making sure they fit. And can I just say, well, how about, how about she's not a Honda or a pair of jeans or a pair of Jordans? She's a soul created in the image of God. How about that? I don't know. How about that? <clears throat> data consistent. Can I just say too, it's not hard to figure out. Like it's really easy to figure out how this thing works. Okay. And also I'm getting ahead of myself here. When you have people who actually love and care for one another, when their goal is to bring satisfaction and, and pleasure to each other's, uh, to the, to their partner, it's better than two people who are at it to get their own self gain. It's just, it is not, it's not hard. And it's better when people are actually committed to each other. Data consistently shows this as well, that the more sexual partners a person have in their life, the lower their sexual satisfaction is likely to be by far. In fact, there's a graph on the screen. You can see this here. It's kind of hard to see. On, on, all the way on your left, it's one partner, two partners, three partners, four, six to 10, 11 to 12, uh, 20, and then 21 plus. What you see is that the more partners a, sexually, a person has, the less sexually satisfied they are in their current marriage sexually. That's what it says. The more partners you have, you actually are less sexually satisfied. Or how about this? In February 2022, the Wall Street Journal, came, came, the Wall Street Journal, not a Christian publication, not a Christian writer here, came out with an article titled this, Too Risky to Wed in Your 20s? Not if you avoid cohabitating first. And then if you read the article, which you can go and look it up this afternoon, they reported, watch this, that religious people who marry young without ever having lived together have the lowest likelihood of divorce in America today. That's what they say. So I just say, let this sink in. All those stats are not good. There are more that we could share. But I just say this to say this. Ever since the sexual revolution, I know there's more that goes into it than just that. But ever since this sexual revolution, we have ended up with the angriest, loneliest, most depressed, least parented generation in our nation's history. And so can I just say, a lot of what this, this world calls progress is actually decay. It's actually decay, which means it doesn't need to be affirmed. It needs to be resisted and confronted with the truth. 
That's what we need to do. Now, whether or not, whether or not gender or sexuality or sexual confusion maybe is a issue for you, maybe like, well, I'm good, like I, I get it, what's the big deal, why are we talking about this? You need to know whether or not it's an issue for you, it is certainly an issue for multiple people in your life. For example, this is the last stat I'll share. In 2022, a Gallup survey found that 19.7% of Gen Z, which is roughly 97 to 2012, so kind of like mid-20s and a little bit lower than that, 19.7%, one in, one in five uh, uh, Gen Z people in the Gen Z people, <laughs> Gen Z population identify as LGBTQ+, one in five. Now, we can debate, we can debate how much of that number is true gender confusion versus social pressure, societal norms, social media. Like, we can debate, like, how much of that is, like, actual that or just, like, kind of confusion trying to figure out what's going on. But regardless, one in five in our up-and-coming generation would say, hey, I'm a part of that group. Now, in, in reality, we actually can really call that more of a movement than anything else. The way we, the reason you can say that is that if you look at, if you kind of look at how these numbers play out, the L and the G, which is the gay, uh, the homosexual uh, percentage of the LGBTQ plus has actually stayed consistent over time. It is the T, transgender, and all the letters that follow that have skyrocketed in the past 20 years, that have brought that number to 19.7%. Again, we're not going to dive all into why that's the case today, just to say that a lot of people are really confused in the up and coming generation. So whether, whether it is an LGBT issue or a non-biblical sexual desire that, are, that is acted on, that you're trying to resist, but that you're acted on and you're not quite sure about it, people are dealing with this. All of us, right? We have, we, here's what it is from, from sexual or not, here's the reality for a lot of us, right? We all have these desires. You may not sure if you fit in, or you may say, well, I enjoy things that are stereotypically the opposite gender, and so maybe my body is the issue. Or maybe society is the issue. And so then we have a question that we must confront. What do we do? We have these urges, and most of us, at the end of the day, we're really on a happiness quest. Like, we just want to be happy in life. Have these urges. I think they'll make me happy. What do I do? That's the question. That's the question. And, and, and what I would say is this. The word, so the word of God, and the world will tell you very different things on what to do if you find yourself in that position. So, for example, 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter writes this. He says, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. He says, regard Christ the Lord as holy. So just maybe not, maybe this isn't big breaking news. At New City Church, we believe Christ is Lord, right? We believe Jesus is Lord. And there is going to be a constant conflict. If you were here for the first week of our series, Jesus and Controversy, there is a constant conflict between what the world says and what God's word says. What the world says you should do and what God's word says you should do. And so you and I, all of us, we have to make a decision. Is the world going to override the word or is the word going to override the world? We all have to decide what we trust in more. Let me give you maybe a thought experiment I think is really helpful. Tim Keller, who was a pastor and a theologian, passed away last year. He, he talked about this way. Imagine for a second that you are an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain living in the year 80, 800 AD, right? So you're, 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 you're in Britain, you're, you're a warrior 80, 800 AD. And you have two, or this, in this example, you have two very strong inner impulses and feelings, okay? One is aggression, 
right? You love to smash and to kill people when they show you disrespect. And you also, you live in a very heavy honor and shame culture where you really have, I mean, there's not a modern day police force. There's not a human rights thing. Like you got to stand up. You've got brute force is how you survive and rise into power. And so you have this warrior ethic and you have this, you have this anger, aggression you deal with. You'll say, I'm going to identify with that anger and aggression. I'm going to express that. You'll say, that's me, that's who I am. Uh, maybe the, at the same time, the other inner feeling that you're feeling or this person's feeling is same-sex attraction, to which if you, live, if you were a British warrior in 800 AD, you would say, that's not me, I will control, I will suppress that desire, I will not live that out. Now, let's say you have the same person living in modern-day New, New York City or really any West, I mean, it could be Raleigh, anywhere in the Western world. You're walking around, and you have those very same two inward impulses, anger and violence and same-sex attraction, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will you say? Well, if you live today, what you'll say is you'll look at that anger, that aggression, and that tendency towards violence, and you'll say, that's not me. I'll get anger management programs. I will suppress that. And then you'll look at your sexual desire where you're told, do whatever, do whatever makes you happy, whatever fulfills you se sexually, because God, sex is our God in our culture today. You'll look at that desire and you'll conclude, well, that is who I am. And I share that because every single one of us has a grid that we use to decide what desires we will suppress and what desires we will express. All of us, we all have a grid. And if we do not have a standard outside of human culture, you will always, regardless of how rational or logical you might say you are, or how rational I might say I am, we will always do what culture tells us because we're social beings who just want to fit in. You will be a slave to whatever sounds right, even if you think you came to that conclusion on your own. If you don't have a standard outside of yourself that you cling to, you will do whatever culture tells you is good. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. It'll be on the screen. He says this, for those who live according to the flesh, flesh is like selfish desires, like live and do whatever I want to do, have their minds set on things of the flesh. So if you live according to your desires, then you will pursue all your desires, no matter what. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Now, Paul goes on to say his argument in Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament is that God offers his spirit through Jesus. It is given by God through Christ to those who give their life to him. And you can actually experience life and peace in the difficulties of this life if you are in Christ. And so at New City Church, what we want more than anything else is we want to be word people, not world people. And so again, if your body and mind, if they feel out of alignment, or if your desires, but biblical wisdom are at odds, here's what I want to do, but here's what scripture says is good for me. Here is what the world will say. The world says this, all your desires are good and you'll only be happy if you fulfill them. Right? Our culture today is what it says. Anything you want, do it, you'll be happy. If not, we talked about this in the first week, you'll either be oppressive to yourself or you'll be repressive to other people. If you tell anyone else not to pursue anything they want that makes them happy, it makes you repressive if it's outward to other people or you're oppressing yourself if it is a desire that you have that you are not acting on. The world says this, all your desires are good and you'll only be happy if you fulfill them. If you fulfill them. But however, here, the word says something different. For example, in Proverbs chapter 14, here's what it says. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. 
In other words, Proverbs says quite the opposite. Just because you desire something, your desire in and of itself doesn't make it right or wrong. Now, you can desire something that, that is good, just like you can desire something that is bad. But just because you have a desire, it does not mean you should actually pursue it. Because some of your desires, some of my desires, if we go for them, they'll actually lead to death and destruction in our life. And so again, Paul's argument in Romans 8 that we read a few verses of is that we renew our minds by setting, them, by setting them on things above, by setting them on Jesus and not the things of the world. That, that he's encouraging us to have habits and practices that help us walk with the Lord and obey him so that we can experience his freedom. It's why he goes on to say this in a well-known verse uh, in Romans chapter 12. Many of you are familiar with. He says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, now not because it's better for you or because God says it's true, because God loves you and has given you grace and mercy. In view of his love for you, I urge you to present your bodies and even your desires, right, as a living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. What is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? So again, if your mind and your body, if they feel out of alignment, or if your desires, your sexual desires, and biblical wisdom, Jesus' teachings are at odds, here again is what the, word sa- the world says. The world says this, all your desires are good, and you'll only be happy if you feel them. That's what the, word, the world says of us. Here's what the word says, okay? Here's what the word says. All your desires will be fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I want to mention something, because this sounds very like pie in the sky. It sounds nice. This means, I'm not saying that you, you follow Jesus, you walk outside this door, all of your bad desires will be gone. What I am saying is that one day Jesus is going to return. He is going to make all wrong things right. And in that moment, you will see that all your desires are actually fulfilled in him. This moment, here and now, you and I have to decide who we're going to trust, the world or the word. We have to decide, man, is Jesus actually going to one day give me everything that I actually desire, but I'm trying to find it in all the wrong ways today? Or am I actually trusting the word that when I see Jesus face to face, I'll see, oh no, this is, this is it. This is the truth. This is why he asked me to live this way. Let me give you, again, I just want to be really, really real with you. Can I give you a really personal example of my life? A couple years ago, I had lunch with a good friend of mine who I've known for a very long time. Uh, he's a faithful follower of Jesus, served in his local church, did all these things. He even like, uh, well, so I'll get ahead of myself. Basically, I come to find out a couple years ago that he was now married to a man and they had two kids together through, uh, through surrogacy, through, through a woman. And I found out through a friend, not through him. And then he found out that I found out and we had lunch and he said, hey, I'm really sorry. Like I should have been the one who told you. And we were talking about, you know, talking about his decision and, and kind of why he's kind of gone this way. And, and if you were in this conversation, um, you would see a lot of like how we talk about this on the news and like publicly. It's just not how it is in real life. Again, all of us at the end of the day, we're on a happiness quest and we're just trying to see what's going to make us happy. Um, he, he, he faithfully followed Jesus for a long time. He said, I've had these desires as long as I can remember. Sometimes I'd have these lapses and then I'd say, I'm not going to do it anymore. And he actually like left his job for nine months, moved to another state to do like this nine month intensive discipleship program thing. And then after the nine months was over, he still had these desires. And he said, man, like I have these desires. I know what scripture says. But I, I, my whole life, like I, I prayed them away and I just, I want to have kids. Like I want to be a dad. And because I'm gay, like it doesn't seem fair that I can't be a dad. Now you hear this story and I just want to say like, 
that's something we should all empathize with. Like he was in a really hard position and I'm not knocking his decision that he's made. I'm just saying like for a lot of people, this isn't as simple as like, well, I'm gonna do this thing, whatever. For some of us, for many of us, like we desire to follow the Lord and we have these desires and we have to say, man, what are we actually going to trust will one day give us what we're actually after? And according to the world, the word, all your desires will be fulfilled in Jesus, but you're gonna have to trust him. You're gonna have to trust him. And so I say, sexual or not, this is the biblical approach. I have something I desire, whether it's greed or lust or addiction to power or making a ton of money, and I can follow my fleshly, selfish desires, or I can, by walking with the Spirit, renew my mind and learn and trust Jesus. And so again, whether this has to do with uh, gender dysphoria or pursuing sexually immoral desires, um, we must choose whether we will follow the world or the word. All of us must choose. Now again, I'll say this. If sexual immorality is defined in scripture as acted on sexual desires, or you, know, you had this thought, you thought someone was beautiful, and you still you you lingered on it, and you desired things, um, including, by the way, fantasizing about someone who is not your spouse, um, outside of marriage, if they say, yeah, that's not what God wants of us. This would include things, I didn't mention this earlier, earlier even reading like graphic novels where you're, you're picturing things that are not you and your spouse together. That also is not what God would want. I just want to be clear. Um, this also includes heterosexual sexual activity by a man and a woman who have not committed themselves to marriage. In the Bible, there is no, well, we're married in a heart. Men, if you love her, you will, you will actually commit yourself for, to her before you take advantage of her body. That, that's what you'll do. You will give yourself to her in all things, in all things. Can I, I, I don't know if I should say this, but this is just a wisdom principle. Um, uh, there's many people that I've talked to at being a pastor over the years, seen in culture. And there's a lot of times where you have a woman who wants her boyfriend to propose, but they're sleeping together. Can I just say, maybe this isn't like politically correct, but this is just like, if you're sleep, if, women, if you're sleeping with a guy and you want him to marry you, you are already giving him what he wants out of the relationship. Not the only thing he wants, but you are giving him what he wants. How, if, if you want him to take a next step, then you must call him. Hey, if you, if you want all of me, if you want to be with me, then you need to commit yourself to me. Commit yourself to me fully. So I say, say listen, this is heavy, man. Like nothing about this is awesome. All of us probably you have quite, I mean, it's a sermon. There's a lot more things we get into. You, have, you probably have some questions. You probably have some shame. You probably have some like doubt. Like I, I'm not sure. You, you probably, uh, you might, some of you might feel the past the weight of past decisions or even current decisions that you are currently making or currently involved in. And right now you, you read all these things and, and man, you feel like a failure. I mean, how can you not, right? Jesus says, if you lust after someone who is not your spouse, you've committed adultery. Like, you, you, you fa- like we've failed. Or maybe you've even started down the road or you know someone who has or maybe is wandering or thinking about it of altering your physical body to conform to the opposite gender. Can I just say that there is actually a scripture passage for you, for me, and for them. In Acts chapter 8, I'm not going to read it for time. I'm just going to kind of tell you the story. Um, in Acts chapter 8, we read a story about a man named Philip. Philip was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And uh, long story short, the Holy Spirit tells Philip to essentially leave Jerusalem, where he currently is at, and start walking towards the desert. I think it's really all the instructions he gets. Hey, start walking towards the desert. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know where he's going. Doesn't know. So, so Philip does that. The Spirit does not tell him why he wants him to go that way. So he starts walking, and eventually he runs into a man, uh, an Ethiopian, uh, he runs into an Ethiopian eunuch. 
an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, a eunuch in the ancient world, in case you're not familiar, was a man who had his genitals cut, crushed, or pierced to essentially feminize them and remove their masculinity. So a lot of times, like this eunuch, most likely, if you're like in the king's court and you dealt with the king's harem, uh, you would be castrated. Oftentimes, many times as a kid, because like your, your job was kind of like, your lot in life was kind of set out for you. And they would do that so that you would not make any sexual advances on any of the women in the king's court. Sometimes they would do this for entertainment purposes. You might be familiar with a couple hundred years ago, they stopped this practice, but like castrati men who could sing really high. There's various reasons why they might do this. And so this was him. Um, it was him. It was basically really an ancient, word, or ancient uh, sexual alteration surgery. That's what it was. Now, this eunuch, if you read Acts 8, was from the capital of Ethiopia. So he's not from Israel. He wasn't Jewish either. And this eunuch traveled roughly 1,000 miles without a car, 1,000 miles to come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So evidently he'd been reading some of the Jewish scriptures and he wants to worship and get to know this God, Yahweh, that's revealed in these scriptures. Now, when Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, when he meets him, he is returning. So this eunuch has already left Jerusalem and he's already headed on his way home. Now, we do not know what this eunuch's experience was like when he went or attempted to go to the temple. We don't know what actually happened to him. But here's what we know historically. Here's what very likely happened to him. Certain parts of the temple in Jerusalem were restricted for certain people and people with certain functions. So uh, we know, for example, that the, the blind, the lame, the diseased, and eunuchs were not allowed, for example, to even enter the temple at all. Not even like the inner court, outer court area. Some people were not even allowed to enter the temple at all. Now, why this is the case is because originally back in Leviticus, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, going to the promised land, they eventually set up a tabernacle. It was a rule for the Levites, which were the, police, uh, the priestly class. Um, who ran the temple worship back then. And it was basically like, you had, to be, you, had to have, you had to go through certain purification rituals to be in the presence of God for the priestly class. By the first century, you know, you have the temple in Jerusalem has gone around and basically kind of extra laws had been added and kind of been applied to the average person as well. Maybe with good intentions, but not always kind of played out well to kind of keep the temple area pure. And so certain people like eunuchs were restricted, not even from entering the temple grounds itself, or sorry, from entering the temple itself, like not even the closest part. They couldn't even get in the doors. And so very likely what happened to this eunuch was he traveled 1,000 miles, months. He travels months to this temple and he gets there and he is told, you can't come in. That's probably most likely what has happened. And here's what I know, man. I know some of you might be thinking, well, here's what I've done. Man, I wonder if God still loves me, or I wonder if there's still hope for me, or I wonder if he still cares for me. And some of the people, here's what I also know, that were supposed to represent God to you actually barred and prohibited you from entering places like this because of what you've done. They've told you, you can't come here. You can't be here because of what you've done. You need to shape up before you're allowed to come in here. And so you think that just like this eunuch, you are also unworthy to worship this God. So that's what happens. And in Acts 8, Philip comes upon this eunuch, and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. So he's reading in this scroll with this chariot. He's sitting there, and he's, this eunuch is reading Isaiah. And he's probably super confused. 
Now, he's reading from Isaiah 53, and he's confused. Now, it's a scroll, and so, you know, you kind of open it this way. It's not like a book. Isaiah was actually multiple scrolls because of how big it was. So he's reading from Isaiah 53, which is probably like 50 through 65, those, those 15 chapters, which means he also would have been reading passages like this. Isaiah 56 says this. It's in the same kind of scroll that he's reading. It says this, and I think this is why the eunuch came to Jerusalem and was probably confused. It says this, no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. This is what this man's reading. He's like, I want, I, I want this. So he travels all this way to see if he can experience what, I, if what this prophet said was true. So think about this. This Ethiopian eunuch, he's a foreigner. He's a eunuch. He had just left Jerusalem where he was likely barred from entering the temple to worship God. In his mind, this section of Isaiah would have been really confusing to him. He would have thought, well, maybe this doesn't mean what I thought it means. He would probably also be really, really sad. Like, there is no hope for me. And as he is beginning his journey all the way back home, this random guy shows up, finds that he's reading from the Isaiah scroll, and this is what he was reading when Isaiah arrived, or when Philip arrived, this is exactly what he's reading, Isaiah 53 to be on the screen. It says, but he, Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant who we now know is Jesus. But he, Jesus, was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray. You saw the hands earlier, right? All of us, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him, not you, but him for the iniquity, for the sins of us all. In other words, God loved this man, this eunuch, so much that he sends out Philip in the desert to track him down. And he's reading this section about how the Messiah who was to come would be cut and pierced and crushed in order to take away the sins of the world. And God sends Philip to the eunuch to say, your scars don't define you, his does. Your scars, your decisions, things that were done to you without your consent do not define you. He does. So if I can close with this point, here's how I just want to close the sermon. Here's what I want all of us to know. That only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. Only Jesus. Not your dad, not your cousin, not your boss, not the, the partner that took advantage of you, not the person who stabbed you in the back, not any bad decision that you made that still, the shame is still walking with you. You're still carrying it with you to this day. That doesn't get to tell you who you are. Jesus, he created you. In John chapter one, it says that all things were created through him and not one thing was created that has been created apart from him. He defines you. But not your sexuality, not your job, not your success, not your failure, not your promise to do better in the future, but Jesus, and he redeems you. 
The gospel is not that you try really hard, and because God loves you enough, if you try, it's like a 50-50 proposition, he'll invite you in. The gospel is that Jesus did everything for us that we could not do. He came to make a way when there was no way. He lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserved, and resurrected over death and evil and sin three days later to say, I am victorious, and he is going to one day come back again, right every wrong, and make all of us fulfilled in him. And the invitation is not, I promise to do better, God, in the future. The invitation is right now, today, you can experience the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God. That's the invitation. So if you're here, man, and you're like, right now, like, I don't know, like, I've gotten this wrong for so long. Right now, can I just say this to you, man? You are surrounded by people who are sexually broken and have been restored by Jesus and his love and his grace. And you can be too. You can't be too. You are not your past. You are not what has been done to you or the decisions that you have made even last night. That's not who you are. You can be defined as a son or daughter of a king who invites you into a better way. The question that we have to ask is, will we trust him or will we trust the world? But we trust the king to say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Will we trust him or will we trust the world? That's what we have to decide. And Jesus' invitation is that all are welcome in my temple. Would you pray with me?